Back in the day, before streaming TV and content on demand, there was something called a trashy daytime talk show. Right after the soap operas ended, the talk shows began. There were names like Maury Povich, Ricky Lake, Montel Williams, Phil Donahue, Geraldo Rivera, and of course, the wildest of all, Jerry Springer. One of the staples of daytime talk shows was the paternity test reveal. There would be some type of dysfunctional family drama, and the climax of the story would be someone finding out if the man that they had always assumed was their father was truly their father. And the results were either tearful hugs or wild on-camera fistfights with chairs being thrown across the set. Today's text of Scripture provides us with a spiritual paternity test, how we can know if God is our Father. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 2 at the end of the chapter, and unless you're driving when you're listening to this, you'll get much more out of it with an open Bible. First, let's recap our series through 1 John, which we are calling Basics for Believers. John uses basic, simple language, yet he often says very profound things. This little letter contains three tests for for the three basic elements of true Christianity. We even came up with a spiritual periodic table of elements. It has three basic elements of true Christianity, truth, light, and love. And there are three tests, one for each element. If you don't pass all three tests, it's a pretty clear indication that you don't have true Christianity. There's the truth test, things we must believe. The light test, the way we must live, or our our lifestyles, or morality. And then there's the love test, who, what, and how we should love. Today's passage is primarily about the light test, our pattern of life or our lifestyle, but it also touches on the love test at the very end. Join with me as I read 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 28, and we'll go all the way to chapter 3, verse 10. And now, little children... Abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, 
nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is the word of the Lord. First, let's take a quick overview of this passage. The first words, and now, tell us that John is building on what he said earlier when he was warning us about antichrists. And again, he uses his standard term of endearment for his readers, little children, modeling Christian love and also, I think, foreshadowing his subject, being children of God. Scholars generally divide this passage into two paragraphs. And the first paragraph stretches across the last two verses of chapter 2 through the first three verses of chapter 3. As a side note, chapter and verse numbers are not inspired, but they are extremely helpful. Chapter and verse uh, references were added centuries after the canon was completed, and they're super helpful, but they're not perfect either. And actually, I recently learned, I reached out to a college uh, Greek professor uh, from years ago about this subject, and I found out that the paragraph structure, at least as far as we know, aren't inspired either. But there are generally accepted changes of subject uh, within Scripture, and so scholars over the years have grouped those into paragraphs that are quite helpful because they illustrate the different thought sections going on here. The first paragraph, verses 28 through 3, focuses on Christ's future appearing, his second coming, when he will be revealed or manifested, and is grounded on a confident hope that we have as Christians. And that future hope affects how we live our lives. The second paragraph, verses 4 through 10, focuses on Christ's first appearing in the past, his first coming when he was revealed for the first time. And it is grounded on Christ's mission, why he came in the first place. And that mission affects how we live our lives. The theme that ties both paragraphs together is being a child of God. In fact, you probably see the section heading children of God above these verses in your English Bibles. This passage is a very specific type of light test. It is a paternity test to see if you truly are a child of God. This test is based on how you live your lives and the results have eternal consequences. In order to understand this passage, it'll be helpful to ask four important questions. Four important questions. First question is, how do you know if you are a child of God? How do you know if you are a child of God? But you might be thinking, what are you talking about? Aren't we all uh, God's children? Aren't we all children of God? No, not according to the Bible. Well-meaning, nice, spiritual people today often say things like, we're all God's children. Sorry, that's not true. Paul says in his sermon on Mars Hill that while we are all God's offspring, we are his creation, we are not naturally his children. Something has to change in order for us to truly become children of God. And this passage gives us at least six ways that you can know you're a child of God. The first, you've been born. You have been born. I know that sounds really obvious, but it's true. To be in God's family, you need to be born again or born from above. Look at verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Born of whom? Born of God. Look at uh, verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. There's often been a lot of confusion or baggage around the term born again, but it's an important biblical term. As Christ told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven unless you are born again. 
You cannot go to heaven unless you have been reborn, born into God's family. But how can we know that we have been born of God? John is clear throughout all his writings on this. Believe in Christ, and you will be born again. You will have eternal life. You could also say trust in Christ or rely on Christ or even bank on Christ. This belief or faith, as Paul typically calls it, goes hand in hand with repentance, a turning from sin and to Christ. But also notice uh, the small phrase in the middle of verse 9 here, for God's seed abides in him. Many commentators believe that this seed refers to the work of the Holy Spirit. The Greek word is sperma, which is where we get the scientific term for the cell that provides the father's DNA at conception. The theological term is regeneration. The Holy Spirit is the one who makes people who are spiritually dead suddenly alive. And some of the first fruits of that new spiritual life are repentance and faith. You have to be born again in order to become a child of God. As a side note, there's a sense that every Christian has been born naturally into the the family. And there's also a sense that every Christian has also been adopted into the family. Both childbirth and adoption are beautiful pictures of the gospel, as those of you who have a ministry of adoption know very well. So you have to be born to be a child of God. You also have to stay in the family. Number two, you abide. You abide. Now, this isn't a concept from a a hippie version of Jesus. To abide simply means to remain or to stay. Notice the first verse, verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. John is telling us to remain in our relationship with our Heavenly Father so that we won't be ashamed when Christ returns. Look at verse 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Staying in that relationship with the Father affects our behavior. Jesus himself taught about abiding. As John records in the 15th chapter of his gospel, Uh, There Christ says, abide in me, and I am the vine, you are the branches, and bear much fruit. What does a branch have to do to abide in the vine? Not much, right? Just stay attached, stay connected, maintain the relationship, the connection. The primary application of this verse has to do with eternal salvation. Those who have trusted in Christ will abide. They will persevere. They will not walk away from the faith like the antichrists we talked about in the previous passage. Those who believe will keep on believing, and they will not experience shame at Christ's coming because Christ bore all of their shame on the cross when he died in the place of sinners. But I also think there is an application for believers here. While no believer will experience shame over sin at Christ's coming, we should live our lives in such a way, always maintaining our intimate relationship with God, so that the thought of Christ returning only fills us with joy and not with shame or regret. As, a, as another side note here, preachers, uh, many preachers, I shouldn't say all, many of the preachers in uh, the circles that Kyle and I grew up with uh, would often use passages like this to guilt trip people into living the Christian life or to walk down an aisle and make a tearful decision. They also liked to make the judgment seat of Christ, where Christians are evaluated at the end of time, into something fearful, Although the the literal word bema seat in the Bible means a place of reward, not punishment. 
They would often cite the the passage that says God will wipe all tears from their eyes as saying, see, you're going to be doing some crying before you get into the pearly gates. No. Romans 8 is crystal clear. There is now therefore no condemnation, no punishment for those who are in Christ Jesus. Tom Hanks famously said in one of his uh, movies, there's no crying in baseball, there's no crying in heaven. That's all that passage means, and it's beautiful uh, assurance. Well, to be a child of God, we must stay in our relationship. We must abide. And if we have truly placed our faith in Christ, we can have every confidence that we will abide. So we must abide. But we also must know our Father. Number three, you know the Father. Look again at verse 6. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. The Greek word for know indicates experiential knowledge. It's sometimes used for intimate relationships and even the most intimate earthly relationship of all. If God is our Father, then we know Him in an intimate, personal way. And if we have that close personal knowledge of the Father, then we will act like Him. Number four, you act like the Father. You act like the Father. This is a consistent theme throughout this passage. Those who have God for their Father gradually but consistently begin to act like their Father in His moral perfection. This concept is all over this passage. Look at verse 29. If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of God. The character of the Father reveals itself in the behavior of the children. Notice the word practice. This is the ESV helpfully indicating that the Greek is using present tense. It's an ongoing activity or a pattern of life. Also look at verse 3. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. The word purity doesn't just refer to sexual purity, but it does certainly include that. It also refers to our our overall moral cleanliness and to the sincerity of our devotion to God. Next verse, verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. There are many helpful definitions of sin in the Bible, whether it's missing the mark, failing to meet, uh, meet the standard, or breaking the rules. Here, John provides a definition of sin that really gets to the heart of the matter. He calls it lawlessness. It is a rebellious lifestyle based on a rebellious attitude. We often think about sin as some sort of act of cruelty or, or, or just moral depravity, but often sin is just an indifferent attitude toward God or a desire for independence from God. Now let's look at verses 6 through 9. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Notice that the ESV says, keeps on sinning. The King James Version says, sinneth not, and other English translations say, does not sin. That just doesn't reflect the Greek grammar, which indicates that he has an ongoing pattern of life in mind here. Notice John also says, whoever practices righteousness is righteous. But didn't Paul say in Romans that there is none righteous, no, not one? 
Yes. This righteousness is not earned. It is received through faith. By faith, we are made righteous. And then we increasingly, though imperfectly, live out this righteousness. Our new, our new birth prevents us from continuing in a pattern of sinful, sinful lifestyle. Again, it's really important to note that he is not talking about any kind of sinless perfection that we could achieve in this life. That is not what the Bible teaches. And don't believe anyone who tells you that it is. So this is talking about a pattern of life. What is the ongoing pattern of your life? Is it practicing righteousness or keeping on sinning? Not only do children live like their father, but they also love like their father. Number five, you love like the father. You love like the father. Notice how John slips in the love test here. We've studied it before and we will study it again. John, the master teacher, knows how to use repetition. Notice verse 10. By this, is, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is phrased in the negative, but the implication is clear. People who love the father will also love the other children of the father, their brothers and sisters in Christ. Do you love other Christians? How do you even know? We will discuss that and more in our next sermon in this series. How's that for a teaser? Come back the next time Kyle lets me preach. Not only will we increasingly live and love like our Heavenly Father in this life, but we have the promise of even more in the next life. Number six, you will be like the Father. You will be like the Father. More specifically, you will be like Christ. It seems clear that John switches from speaking about God the Father to Christ because the appearing he's talking about here is the second coming of Christ. Notice verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Christ and the Father are both God, and they both share the same character and moral perfection. And we will likely have a resurrection body that is like Christ's resurrection body. And seeing and knowing God and his moral perfection will change us into that same image. We will not be all-knowing or all-powerful like God, but we will share in his moral perfection and we will never again struggle with sin. Also notice John's title for his audience in verse 2, Beloved. John loves his audience, and he is making a statement about how we as Christians have been loved by God. Here, the fact that we will one day be made like God is a great symbol and sign of God's love. It is also a great hope that he mentions in the next verse, which we have as Christians. Those who turn from their sins and trust in Christ alone have been born into God's family, and they have the assurance that they will abide and that one day, they will be like Christ himself. That's how we can know we are a child of God. And this brings us to a very sobering thought. There is no such thing as being neutral. In one sense, there are no spiritual orphans. Everyone has a spiritual father, and there are only two options. Either we are children of God, or we are children of the devil. And who is the devil? The devil, also known as Satan, also known as Lucifer, is not God's equal. He was created by God and he rebelled. He tempted our first father and mother to sin, causing us all to inherit a sin nature. He will one day be totally defeated and punished for all eternity in hell. 
Until then, he busies himself uh, with one mission and one mission only, spiting God. He spreads evil and injustice. He tempts people to sin and tries to prevent them from repenting of their sins and trusting in God for the forgiveness of sins. He knows he cannot win, but he wants to harm as many people as possible. This passage also provides a short paternity test to see if the devil is our father. Second question, how do you know if you are a child of the devil? How do you know if you are a child of the devil? Look at verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. It's a two-part test. They do not practice righteousness is the first part. You practice sin. Again, this has to do with ongoing practice of sin. It's a lifestyle of doing what is wrong, living in rebellion against God's authority. Sin is Satan's nature. As verse 8 says, Satan has been sinning from the beginning. If we consistently behave like the devil, it means he is our spiritual father. Like father, like child. The second part of the test is that you do not love other Christians. Satan hates human beings because they are created in the image of God. And he hates Christians because they are the children of his most hated enemy. If you do not love other Christians, you have no desire to be around them, you hate them, or you're just indifferent to them. You are not a child of God. So it is possible to be a child of the devil, to act like the devil, and to be doomed to the same eternal fate as the devil. I know this sounds harsh, but it's true. If we have not become children of God through faith, then no matter how otherwise moral we might be, we are the children of the devil, and we will share his eternal, the eternal punishment of our Father. But that's not the end of the story. It is possible for us to know that we are children of God. And before we get to that, let's first look at why we should become children of God. What are the results, in other words, of being God's child? And I'll tell you now, not all of them are pleasant. Question number three, why should you become a child of God? Or what are the results of becoming God's child? The first, first result is confidence. Verse 28 assures us that if we are children of God, we will have confidence and not shame when Christ returns. We can have confidence that at Christ's return, uh, we can have confidence at Christ's return for the same reason that we can now come boldly before the throne of God in prayer. Because of the work of Christ on the cross in the place of sinners. Second result is mind-blowing love. Notice the first part of verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The words that John uses here shows that he is joyfully astounded by this love. This is shocking, scandalous love. Not just that we get the honorary title of children of God, but that we actually become his children. If the Apostle John spoke like Bill and Ted from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, he'd probably say something like, whoa, dude, this love is most excellent. That's for all of you children of the 80s out there. Does this love blow your mind? But it's not all benefits. There is actually a cost to being God's child. Number three, the third result, is alienation from the world. Notice the rest of verse 1. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Two sermons ago in this series, we learned that the world means the evil world system influenced by Satan that rebels against God and his authority. 
It wants us to love the pleasures and the achievements of this life rather than what God loves. And the cost of, of knowing God is that the world will not know you. It will think that you are weird, out of your mind, or even dangerous. This can be hard for those of us who are susceptible to peer pressure, and there's a whole lot of peer pressure in the army, as there, there is in every walk of life. And this can be a big fear for those who live for the approval of others, whether that's the approval of friends, co-workers, battle buddies, neighbors, family, fans, customers, or even constituents. It can be a big fear for those who live for their careers or for some other sense of accomplishment. As Christ warned us, they will hate you because they hated me. And that's part of the cost that we need to count before we consider becoming a child of God. But the benefits keep going. Fourth result, number four, is hope. Hope. Verse three speaks of a hope that motivates us to purify ourselves. Verse two makes it clear that that hope John refers to is the hope of being like Christ when he returns. And this is not a hope that we normally think of today, like wishful thinking. This is a confident hope, a rock-solid hope that when we see Christ, we will be like him. Fifth result is victory over sin and Satan. Victory over sin and Satan. Being a child of God means short-term rejection of the world system. But that doesn't mean that you're on the losing side. God will ultimately and totally win. And this passage lists two mission statements for Jesus Christ. Verse 5 says that Christ appeared in order to take away sins. And verse 8 says the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Satan will be defeated, and his works, sin, will be defeated. Christ conquered sin once for all at the cross, and those who place their faith in him will be justified of those sins. And then God begins a process of sanctification in our lives whereby sinful patterns in our daily lives gradually and steadily are conquered until one day we will be like Christ in his perfect sinlessness. So those are the two options, and those are the benefits and the cost. Now we come to the final question. How do you become a child of God? How do you become a child of God? And friends, that's the gospel. That's the good news. That because Christ died for sinners, sinners can be forgiven. How does this happen? Admit your sin. Turn from that sin. Believe in, trust in, rely upon Christ and Christ alone. And the God who cannot lie says that he will forgive your sins and make you his child. I've got four quick applications for you, and then we're done. First application, Christian, remember whose child you are and act like it. Christian, you are a child of a holy, pure, and righteous God who does not sin. Are you seeing those qualities in your life? Keep on striving for those qualities. Your efforts to fight sin please your dear daddy in heaven. Be who you are and who you are becoming and who you will become. Application number two for non-Christians out there, and we're so grateful that we often have non-Christians either in attendance or watching us online. Non-Christian, become a child of God. You only have two options. You can, through faith, become a child of God and spend eternity with Him, or you can remain a child of the devil and spend eternity with Him. There is no third option, there is no neutrality, and really there is no good reason to delay. 
Become a child of God. Admit your sinfulness, turn from your sins, rely on Jesus Christ alone, and you can become a true child of God. And if you have questions about this, please talk to me, talk to Kyle, talk to somebody else from Faith Family Church that you, tr- uh, you trust. We would love to show you from the Bible how you can know that your sins have been forgiven and that you have been made a child of God. Third application, live a life of confident hope. When the Bible uses the word hope, it's not in the wishful, uncertain sense that we usually mean today. Biblical hope is a confident expectation that the promises of God will be fulfilled. This passage gives us hope that someday we will be like our Savior. In a a world where we see injustice, death, sickness like the coronavirus, and many other things that are outside of our control, we can have a sure and solid hope in the promises of God. Application number four, revel in the mind-blowing love of God. If you have trusted Christ as your Savior, you are one of these beloved, these ones loved that John is speaking of here, is speaking to here. John is overcome with wonder at the love of God, that we should be called children of God and actually be children of God. John was overcome with wonder and so should we. We may have known many disappointments and discouragements in our life, but we can comfort our hearts in the fact that in Christ, we have been loved with a mind-blowing love from our dear Heavenly Father. Who your earthly father is, in some ways, can determine a lot about you. What you look like now and what you will look like someday. Some of, you, uh, some of your personality traits, likes and dislikes, and even aspects of your character can be influenced by your earthly father. Who your spiritual father is determines everything important about you, how you live your life, and where you will spend eternity. Some of you didn't have great earthly fathers growing up, and that might have poisoned your feelings toward God. But you knew that such a thing as a good father existed, whether it was on TV, at a friend's house, or just as an inner instinct. God is the best father you could ever imagine. He is the perfect heavenly father. And some of us had good and loving fathers, and even they are but a pale shadow compared to the perfect purity, consistent character, and limitless love of our God, our Heavenly Father. Through the work of Christ and the enabling power of the Holy Spirit, God the Father can become our dear Heavenly Father. Are you a child of God? Do you want to be? Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.